How to become a cloud native security architect is a question that we get asked quite often. Cloud native as space is growing quite rapidly. Kubernetes had a 70% adoption increase over the last couple of years. That is massive. If you are a solution architect, technical architect, or a cloud architect trying to become a cloud native security architect, then this is the episode for you. We had Christophe Paracel who was talking about how he transitioned from being a technical architect in on-premise to becoming a cloud security architect. And then now he works in cloud native security architecture space, working on Kubernetes cluster. This was a really interesting conversation to talk about what is the complexity of working in an enterprise space as an architect, the kind of counterweight you have to have when you're trying to talk to Amazon, Azure, Google Cloud. They tell you that use this solution, but you kind of have to balance that with what you already have in an organization context, maybe from a secret management perspective, from a network security perspective, the whole confidentiality, integrity, and availability, the principles that the whole information security space or cybersecurity space is built on. This was a great episode. If someone who's about to become a cloud-native security architect or is trying to get into the space, definitely share the episode with a friend, your colleague, your social media. It's really helpful for them. And it also helps us find more people that we can help out as in the space as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're coming in for the second, third, or fourth time, and if you haven't subscribed to the iTunes podcast or the Spotify or even watching this on our YouTube and LinkedIn channel for Cloud Security Podcast, I would definitely love it if you can subscribe and follow because that lets us know that, hey, the community is behind what we're trying to create and they're trying to support us. So sharing information like this and following and liking, this is really helpful for us in finding new people. And I'm super grateful for it. So thank you. This was also an episode going into the Halloween weekend. We have a special video coming for the Halloween special on Monday. So definitely keep an eye out for that on our LinkedIn pages and YouTube channel. And I'll see you on the next episode, which is the beginning of our AWS Security Month, which is starting next week. Because towards the end of next month is AWS reInvent. And this month, hopefully you enjoyed KubeCon as well. And if you have any experience from KubeCon, you can share that as well. Otherwise, we are definitely coming to AWS reInvent. And if you're there, would love to catch up and say hello to you as well. So definitely feel free to reach out. And as always, I appreciate your time. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Christophe Paracel because it was totally valuable. There were so many conversations online as well. Definitely check that out. And I will see you in the next video. Enjoy this video. When you're developing an app, security might be treated as an afterthought. With functionality requirements and tight deadlines, it's easy to accidentally write vulnerable code or use a vulnerable dependency. But Sneak can help you secure your code in real time, so you don't need to slow down to build securely. Develop fast, stay secure. Good developer. Sneak. Hey, Christoph. Hey, for coming in, then. Very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Ashish. I'm so glad you came in. It is like one of the probably most requested topics, especially because this is a KubeCon month as well. And there are so many people who have been architects for a long time, like security architects and other architects, but they're trying to transition to how do I become a cloud native security architect? Last time we did a cloud native security engineer, and I'm so glad we can do the cloud native security architect as well. So a good place to start could be maybe if you can tell us a bit about yourself and I guess what was your background and how'd you end up being like a cloud native security architect? Yeah, sure. So when I started, I started in the cloud in for what, in 2015. It's a, it was seven years ago already. So before that, I was a technical architect working, of course, on premises for a big, uh, big company. And yeah. so it was like by chance that I became a cloud architect because we were rather early bird in adopting the cloud. It's already seven 
years ago. So I was at the right place and at the right time. And I was fortunate enough to so to join the boat of the transformation to the cloud, a very early bird. And it was really a fascinating time because it was really the beginning, if you remember, in 2015, it was really the beginning of the cloud. We were talking mostly about infrastructure as a service and all the stuff that came later was not already there. And so many, many things were to be pioneered and discovered at that time. And so it was really an, an interesting time to start. Awesome. And I think to what you called out seven years ago, that is pretty much like the beginning and not many AWS services, not much maturity in the security space as well. And exactly. I mean, I don't even know if cloud native existed. Maybe it did, but it wasn't really that popular. No, no, you're right. At that time, we, I, I don't think we talk about the cloud native. For what I understand, the term kind really started to become popular when we talked about Kubernetes in yeah, 2013, yeah. 14. Well, a bit later on, 17. It's in 2017, which really took off. It became very popular. Yeah. And it was the Google guys who minted the, the term. I'm not too sure, but it was about that time that we spoke a lot about Kubernetes. Yeah. They made a documentary on this as well. And I mean, it was, by the way, people who haven't checked the Kubernetes documentary, they should definitely check that out. I definitely found that Google, once they kind of made it a thing, suddenly it was like, oh, everyone's talking about a cloud native. Everyone wants to be like Google. But a lot of people have different definitions for cloud native. How do you define cloud native? So for me, cloud native, you agree, there are many definitions. There are two meanings for me to it. And I often I use native cloud and not cloud native. We have the cloud native is more or less what Google defined. I mean, it's really using stuff that you can do on-premise. For example, I'm talking, I'm thinking a lot about, of course, infrastructure as code is really typical of what is for me cloud native. Programmatic deployments and shouldn't be called infrastructure as code anymore, but maybe nearly application as code because or middleware as code because we can do so much now with just a code. So for me, it's all these capabilities. That's cloud native. So all of what you think when you think about Terraform and all those stuff, it's, for me, it's cloud native. These are tools that can be provided by anybody, but that won't work well on premises. And yeah. But also native cloud. For me, native cloud is different. It's related, but it's really using the capabilities of the cloud providers themselves out of the box. And, and these capabilities can only provide it by themselves. So it means the three majors, Google, Amazon, and Azure. And there is no much competition. You can't have really third parties in native cloud. It's really those three. And you try to, to make do with what you have. Yeah. And of course, you are a little bit vendor locked. <laughs> but for me, it's using the capabilities natively and often for free as well. Meaning you have the pay-per-use feature, but then yeah. once you pay for your consumption, it's free. And often security services, native cloud security services are often free. And that's good to know. And because they are sometimes very powerful and I will have the opportunity to talk about this today. Yeah, bit. I think I love how you kind of place it because I wonder, kind of like you and I, people have been in the space for a long time, like yourself, they were technical architects before as well. And they may not have understood this fact that, oh, there are native services in cloud service providers that can be used to do security. People who may not be converted and people who may still think I need, I don't know, a Panalto or a Sneak or something or these other solution to do protection or security in my cloud environment. When you and I were talking about this, you kind of spoke about the whole negotiation thing that you have to do as well for using a, I don't know, an existing service versus using a cloud native service. How do you kind of convince people for why do you feel cloud native is important in the first place? Given a choice, what should people think about when they're thinking about between choosing a cloud native service? 
uh, that this question would be for a cloud engineer, for a cloud architect. You wouldn't put this like this. That's, uh, the architect is, uh, before all, a strategist. So yeah, yeah. he works for the corporation. And the architect, the cloud architect, is more responsible for the posture, the security posture, and the strategy that goes behind this. While the cloud architect will more discuss about products and about what is the right service for me. Yeah. It can be a lift and shift. In some cases, if it is a strategy of the enterprise, then the good, and maybe in five years, they will move on and to more uh, native stuff. But there's no good and bad reason for using an old service or a good service. It has to be rationalized. It has to be explained mm. in terms of corporate strategy, in terms maybe of financial gains, headcount yeah. gains, and how difficult it will be according to the maturity of the staff, the operating model you have. So it's not just zero, one, black and white. It really depends. And that feature team people are really important role to play because we talk a lot about microservices and the culture around microservices. And what I like about it is that everybody has his little garden Mm. and is responsible for what he does in his little garden. And sometimes maybe a feature team will decide to use something that's been used for. 15 years in the corporation, other will use something that is brand new, serverless, and maybe it's not, it's still in preview. It's a viable model. And I like this idea of microservices because we know that it's, in many cases it works. And that the architect is, must step back and uh, he must uh, like uh, organize and uh, put consistency around this, all the buzzling about the services and the, the decisions people make. And, and we have two levels of, uh, of expertise, I, I would say, yeah. in terms of uh, service. Interesting. And I'm glad you kind of answered this as well, because next question is going to be, what are the responsibilities of a cloud native architect? Like, do they really, like you've obviously been a technical architect before on-premise and a lot of listeners who we are maybe listening to over here are probably still technical architects looking to transition into that cloud native architect or a cloud security architect role. Do the responsibilities change quite a bit between like the two? If you are an architect, it's, it's already difficult to, to transit to, towards the job of an architect. So if you're an architect, it's, it's already a huge, it, it should uh, something very important. What is difficult or in the cloud specifically when you're an architect is you are the heart of the, the cloud transformation journey, right? Mm. You have to deal with three important uh, driving forces. The first one is, of course, you are facing the cloud provider front, I would say. And uh, there is an, an imbalance here, I would say, uh, because you, the provider has uh, an army, let's say, of uh, solution architects uh, for, that work for him. And yeah. you are a lot more or less uh, alone uh, facing them. And you have to, to act as a counterweight to what they are selling, because their interest is, is that you succeed in your journey. Of course. Yeah. And so what they try to to explain to you is very logical and very useful, but you always have to keep in mind that the solution architects don't know your information system and they don't know your culture and your enterprise culture and have the complexity to move. So sometimes you have to take all this into account. That's why architects are used to that kind of negotiation. But it's a little bit different with solution architects because usually opinionated, I would say, more than maybe others. And, and I myself also, who, who works on the other side, I'm, I'm also opinionated. So I, it's not a criticism, right? We're all opinionated <laughs> somehow. Otherwise, yep. we wouldn't be architects. But this is the first element. It's the imbalance between you and a lot of uh, solutions architects that you may, uh, you may face who are telling the same thing to you. And, and yeah, maybe you, you could say, okay, maybe it's the right thing to do. No, not necessarily the right thing to do or not just exactly like this. We have to adjust 
the, the way we, we do. And it's really the job of an architect is really to step back and to have some critical thinking, and especially in the cloud. It's not easy because if you're just starting in the cloud, you don't have necessarily all the bullets and all the, you don't necessarily know what's behind the cloud. So you have to have expertise while you are not still expert to make yeah. your own judgment. But this is the first driving force, cloud provider itself. Second driving force is your own IT. Normally, IT is driving the transformation journey That's uh, right. in sync with the business. But yeah. uh, as a security architect, you have to adapt to their strategy, right? Because yeah. they, are, they are leading the way. But uh, in terms of security, you have to drive this. And it's not easy because uh, usually the IT and the business want to move fast. They think it's easy. They have other examples. They can always compare to what others do. And the success stories are more, you remember, is more easily success stories than failures. And so, uh, <laughs> so sometimes it's, it puts pressure on you to go as fast as them. And uh, the yeah. security does not always go as fast. So you have to, to, to speed up usually. Yeah. Um, probably you used to do uh, on-premises. And the last thing is that it's a transformation, right? The cloud transformation. But yeah. it's not only a transformation for the IT and the business. It's a transformation for all the IT workflow processes, people that you have internally, right? You have those yeah. people. Uh, and what does it mean for them, cloud transformation? Are you going to move all the controls of your processes to the cloud, like a kind of lift and shift, but not a lift and shift of asset, but lift and shift of security processes. Are you yeah. going to build something from scratch? There's an opportunity here, right? Yeah. To, to rethink your internal security processes. And that's the role also of the security architect. He must take into account all these and explain to the CISO. Well, there's a lot of communication skills related to the transformation for the security team. Explain also yeah. to the, the CIO uh, yeah. how you want to make Things. So that's for me, that's a I love how you said this as well, because to what you called out as well, there is a balance to be found between, and this kind of links to the question that just came in from Gabriel as well. It sounds like cloud native security architect is a solution architect, but essentially to what you're saying is that a solution architect is someone designing a solution probably is from AWS or has a very similar interest for, hey, you should use AWS R53 or you should use AWS, I don't know, insert service here. But you as an organization know that you probably have another provider for this already, but AWS is trying to sell, I want to sideline only AWS. I'm sure Azure, Google, yeah, Cloud, exactly they all the do same. It. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's as an architect, you kind of have to make the call for, is this the right solution for me? Or is this going to work with the organization that I'm working for? Is it going to balance with what we already have? So we're not spending money and consuming a new service that we don't need. Or even the other part where am I working with the solution architect? Uh, to design something which is too hard to manage because there's an operational thing as well here. Like, are, no, 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 did I miss anything in terms of how different it is to solution architect? I think it's, it's exactly it. Yeah, it's exactly it. The, the only thing is too complex. As you said, it, it could be too complex. Usually the cloud is easier uh, to integrate, uh, to yeah, integrate parts yeah. to integrate than in on-premises. So it's rarely too complex. But the change to the, it's really disruptive in terms of the technology. And this is what is more difficult to, uh, to, deep, to, to like, let's say, to deep dive in. Yeah, because yeah. you have to add the security dimension to that. And the security dimension is often overlooked because we have a tendency to, well, not less now, but we used to think that because we consume services from past services, platform as a service, it's already for you. Everything is set and, and ready to be used, which is far from yeah. true. You have a lot of things to do as part of the cloud security model to do on your side. And, and so it's not that complex to integrate 
right? Yeah. But it's complex to, to manage your risks, especially related to this. Yeah, and maybe dangling the whole cloud native versus using existing services. Well, now, hopefully, Gabriel, that answers the question. And if you have any follow-up, feel free to ask that as well. Vinit just message saying he loved the explanation. Right. Thank you, Vinit. And Vinit has a question as well. What's your experience in terms of culture to move into a cloud native environment? How would I say? The culture to move into a cloud environment, it's, it, when you have a, an enterprise where there is a strong push to move yeah. to the world of cloud, you must, as a security guy, do all that is possible so that you don't block this move, right? The adoption. So yeah. it is often security guys have the tendency to say, okay, this is new. We don't know what it is. We are going to put gates and gates and gates between you and the product. And that it is really, really something that will kill the adoption, especially on the developer side. So we must foster, if we have this chance that there is a culture of change, we must foster this culture and accompany this culture rather than put the put roadblocks on the way. And yeah. what is really fantastic with the cloud is that you can do it. Actually, sometimes it's not that easy to, to control, let's say, uh, to put security in, in stuff in a way that is not so not a pain for users. But in the cloud, you have many ways to be as seamless as possible. And you, you must explore the seamless path as much as possible. Yeah. And maybe another thing to add over there is just to understand services from your cloud service provider as well. So to your point, the culture transformation is a bit more easier because you may not be an expert in the service, but you understand if I was to secure this service, what I should be doing and what cloud native services I can use. Is that right? Yes, it's always difficult, but that to become an architect, we have a lot of architects here, I guess, so I, they want to discover something new. But if you want to be a real an expert in architecture, there is no 30,000 ways to do it. You have to practice, you have to experiment by yourself. You have to deep dive into the products. Otherwise, you are going to talk about something which is very theoretical, right? And mm -hmm. you can't act as a counterweight to what I was just saying, right? Yeah. So... It's very important to have an innate knowledge of the products you're talking about. And because otherwise, the decision you take now will linger forever in your enterprise. We always talk about technological debt. It's, it's, security debt can be also a kind of technology debt if you take the, right, the wrong decision because you didn't think about all the capacities or, and all also the potential risks related yeah. to the consumption of a service. Oh, that's a good point. Hopefully that answers your question, Vinit, by the way. I appreciate that. That's a great question. I'm glad we kind of came into a segue in terms of the thinking on how someone would design the application. So as a cloud-native security architect, you're obviously you're thinking in mind, if there's a service which is cloud-native, I would prefer using that for security. Is there like a methodology or a framework that you think of when you're trying to design an application or an architect an application in cloud? We have something. We, uh, as a security guys, something which is overlooked and it's very important, especially during the cloud transformation journey for security guys, is to cling to the risk analysis. Yeah, if have, I know it's a lot because the architects must be also risk analysis experts, but it's it's really important to to not overlook risk analysis and just. Because we always say, okay, we are going to, to rely on this study, a third-party independent study. It says it's okay, it's all fine, okay, go for it. No, no. Yeah, the reason why we do risk analysis is because what we want to implement in terms of architecture patterns is context-dependent, right? It depends on, well, on your enterprise. It depends on your operating model. It depends on the budget you have. And so you really have to take the context into account and the posture. I think we didn't talk to, uh, enough about the security posture. I will talk it uh, in a, maybe in a, in a minute. But the posture you take, and uh, the posture yeah. is a strategic choice, will heavily yeah. uh, drive 
the mitigations and the risk that you can cover in the cloud. So risk analysis, it's old school, old fashioned. Uh, less people do it now because I don't know exactly why, but it's very important to find the risk independently from a meter attack matrix or whatever and know your risk. And, and then even if you don't mitigate all them, at least you have identified them and that they are here. And yeah. you shouldn't miss any risk. And that's yeah. why you need to deep dive into the services as well. Yeah, that's a good point as well, because you, what you just called out, enterprise still use a risk matrix for making decisions. Like there's a business risk, technical risk, security risk, whatever the risk is. I totally believe, and I hope it is still being used. And I definitely define services are secured based on risk level as well. So to what you called out earlier, and if I were to put an example to it, if you're going to adopt a service, which is non-compliant, and that's a risk from a compliance perspective, you may be breach of your compliance policies or whatever. Or probably another example, we were making this video the other day around top 10 AWS misconfiguration. One of the things that came up was use of non-compliant AWS services. Because, well, we may be required to do PCI compliance, but we may use a service that is not PCI compliant from AWS. That's technically breach of contract or breach of industry standard. So how do you find that to what you said, counter with the balance? How do we kind of find the balance as well? I think that's why I find that fascinating as well. Yes, yeah, exactly. And that's where we, we add the most value as a security architect. We should focus, this is my opinion, we should focus more on the framework, the security framework that we're going to put into place into the cloud than really the applications themselves, application security. If we talk about code, it's something that we, it's, it's not, much, there's not too much disruption when you go to the cloud when you think about it. You have your software factory, you have your controls, your stuff. Yeah. Uh, and we, it's not a priority to, it's more the job maybe of the cloud engineer to, to, uh, to do that, to secure the code and the upper part of the applications. But the framework, the general way we are going to, uh, to secure in a scalable, in a service agnostic way, I would yeah. say even so in some cases, how are we going to safely consume the services is where we should put the emphasis as a cloud yeah. security architect. And maybe talking specifically about native services, like, like nowadays, even you can even get a managed Kubernetes service as well in different providers. Does this kind of thinking change for applications you built using Kubernetes clusters? So uh, the man uh, at Kubernetes and the cloud is really uh, in a weird, uh, weird situation, I would say, because it doesn't fit very well into the past model. You can use Kubernetes as a gas, of course, yeah. uh, no problem. You enter it yourself. It's, it's fantastic. It's very useful. For the past, it's less clear. You, when you, you say who is managing Kubernetes in the past, actually, you open the door to many, many questions. <laughs> and it's, it's sometimes very difficult. It really depends on your culture and your enterprise, your operating model, once again. If you work in a small startup, it will be perfect maybe to use the managed Kubernetes service. Yeah. But if you think about, if you have hundreds of feature teams, are they all going to be Kubernetes masters? Uh, how are they going to manage the intricacies of the configuration? And when there is a problem in production, they will be woken up at 5 a.m. in the morning or 4 a.m. And how are they going to troubleshoot their Kubernetes cluster? It's, or, or how do they perform a migration? Of, of cluster. Yeah. Sometimes you have to do, you can do a Rugin migration or whatever, but it's not really something that is obvious for all feature teams, you know, and Microsoft or Google or Amazon will not do it for you. That's where you have services like Azure Container Applications or Amazon ECS, yeah, which are yeah, very yeah. interesting for that. And that serverless or hidden Kubernetes has a lot of potential 
and uh, more potential maybe than managed Kubernetes as we have today, which is a bit awkward in, in, in terms of positioning in the past ecosystem. What do, what do you think, Ashish? Yeah, so as well, I, I kind of with you on this one as well, on the fact that not everyone in your organization would be a Kubernetes expert for sure. And hopefully you're not bringing like a bare metal Kubernetes as well. We literally had this conversation this morning and people were just like, my normal advice to people these days, especially if it's an enterprise, is not to touch bare metal Kubernetes. As much as you love the idea and as mm -hmm. much as your team members love the idea, it is a bad idea <laughs> to begin with. Because if there's a managed version, just go for the managed version. A lot of the services are taken care of. And to your point about a lot of the services in bare metal would be custom code. Who's going to support custom code in production? Yeah, like exactly. would your employee or team member wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning and to what you said, solve the problem? They're not going to do that because they've already pushed it over to the other side. Like, oh, good luck. Hopefully <laughs> support team. And they're like trying to do a level three or a P3, P4 ticket, P1 ticket. I'm with you on this one. I definitely find the challenge of learning kubernetes was at least for me personally was twice at least i felt i learned cloud and then i oh i need to learn cloud native and then i learned cloud kubernetes as well what was that journey for you like in terms of becoming that kubernetes architect as well was that because your point about knowing it from the background yeah, well, I'm not an expert in Kubernetes, but oh, me not. Me neither, me neither. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there is one expert. In I'm kidding. In terms of compute pass, I started with by using ECS and and Service Fabric, Azure Service oh, Fabric. Yeah. For me, uh, well, Service Fabric is very similar in terms of man pass management. It's, it's uh, as difficult as uh, as Kubernetes, but at least I I started to have an idea of what was gonna come very early, a lot of years ago. And so we immediately, what struck me was the fact that the pass model was to be split in two. You have the half pass, half platform as a service and the full platform as a service. And for me, I make clearly the distinction between two, the two and that you have AS, GK and all the stuff, the managed clusters. And then you yeah. have, let's say, maybe Fargonetis or yeah. ACA, which is really a truly managed by the provider cluster. And then you don't manage the control plane. At, no. And that's what makes a difference. You don't have, you forget about the control plane and you focus on your data plane and your application deployments. For me, Kubernetes has a a better role to play in the background if we all forget about it of course it is a critical piece of the system but it's hidden away from it from us yeah and uh, the less i hear about kubernetes the, the better uh, i feel makes sense man to your point about abstraction it definitely is required not because it's a technology people should not learn it just it definitely works really well at scale and works really fast yes, exactly. yeah. we, we, we do need it that. But to your point about the com complexity of what you just called out, the half platform as a service and the full platform as a service, I'm, I'm so grateful you said that because there's another part to this as well, which people don't talk about is your Kubernetes cluster is talking to potentially a, another managed service. Like in case of AWS, it may be talking to RDS. They're yes. completely different from a model perspective. You have to somehow define these two together and still be able to, from a security perspective, do incident response, still be able to do continue planning exercises, what would identity look like across the board as well? What are you doing for storage encryption? Is that the same exactly. key? Can the keys be exchanged? Yeah, yeah. There's so much complexity there, right? Yes, and, and the security architect has a, a big role to play about what you just said. For example, uh, uh, encryption is a world in itself, and, and there are so many ways to perform encryption. So that will depend on the way you, you manage risk, How may, if you want to deal with encryption, or if you want the, 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 the provider to manage encryption for you. So there are many options, but the architect has always 
to define a posture about this also. You see, and there has to be some consistency within your enterprise as to how you manage secrets, because a secret is a secret or something confidential, personally identifiable information. Uh, if a feature team handles it in a way and another feature team handles uh, it differently, sooner or later you will run into problems. The secret, uh, a standardized secret service is an interesting one because I was going to talk about some of the components that you see that as an enterprise, people should like to your point, centralize, like centralized secret management service, centralized. Are there like common services that you think, like before people kind of go down the path of building a cloud native application as a due diligence or as just general hygiene, should there be certain services that people should centralize or take care of, have a common understanding across the organization so that these services can be reused in the cloud native architecture. So to your point, then there is no, oh, my Kubernetes is using a special secret manager. There's another secret manager there, another separate identity. Like are there sort of common services that you think of that people should standardize across the board? Uh, secret management, of course, is something that springs to mind, but it's very difficult when you think about it to standardize secret management, at least because, well, we have an hist- a record, a past record of how we use the cloud already. And so it's very difficult to, uh, to move everybody using a key vault, for example, or a HSM. We are never sure that everybody will follow you and uh, will use a key vault. We have to, but it's very difficult to make sure that everybody is using this centralized this common feature and this common policy. So yeah. it's a long-standing project. And if you don't do it right from the beginning, then it's really painful. And But it is a duty of the architect to do so, right? To make yeah. sure that security and the handling of secrets is properly managed and consistently managed. And I'm thinking about also not of services, but of private endpoints and private links. Oh yeah, This is something that is relatively new that we didn't have a few years ago, but now we have to, to manage them and to define a strategy about it. We have no excuse not for using them anymore except that you have to pay for it and it, it might be a problem unfortunately <laughs> but it adds a new layer of security and the way of you integrate services together that you couldn't do before and uh, security architect uh, must, must revisit his risks analysis yeah. and make a recommendation related to the use of private endpoints for example and also we should have also some common services like uh, internet access yeah, how yeah. you deal with that exposure if you are uh, an internet-facing application or how are you going to download stuff from the internet? Do you rely on this, your software factory and your to provide you the package that you need? Or are you going to go live on the internet and, and pick up uh, any binary which is potentially a virus or ransomware, you see? So there is a common service to define also for internet access. And for identities, of course, we we have this wonderful thing that is managed identities now, and the equivalent yeah. in AWS, and the instance rules, which are the instance rules. That, what is very nice about it is that you don't have to manage the hassle of secrets uh, rollover, secrets, secrets propagation, because sometimes you it's good to have a secret, okay, yeah. to generate one, but how are you going to distribute the secret? <laughs> Uh, all the consuming application is a nightmare, especially it's a nightmare when you have to roll over the secret. So um, manage identities if you are native. For me, it's, it's just the best example of a security native service or feature. Uh, manage yeah. identities or server-side encryption. Also, we would say that it's a wonderful native security service. And these are the common services that we have to we have to promote and uh, see how we can fit into the, the patterns we are working Ah, uh, I love so, it. And I love the fact that you covered all the CIA, confidentiality, integrity, and availability as well. Because you got confidentiality with the encryption 
and the network stuff you talk about integrity with again what you spoke about that as well making sure you're aware of what secrets are being shared and whether the secrets has not been changed and how do you modify that as well availability for designing for scale which kind of touched on that earlier as well so that was definitely there so almost like if people want to take a step back and talk about some of the common services that you think people normally use like if you were to build an application which is a kubernetes application for people who may not have designed a solution in that space in the kubernetes space but are curious as to what are some of the common components you see in a managed kubernetes application uh, that could be about like whether aws azure google cloud doesn't matter but it's a to what you said node.js or whatever application hosted in a managed kubernetes service by a cloud service provider are there common services similar to the identity network thing that you talk about where hey I, I normally look at these services and, or I normally look at, think about these things when I'm designing a solution. Not specifically. Like I, I would rather work the framework to secure the service itself. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Me, also, what kind yeah. of framework, if you don't mind expanding um, that? Meaning uh, the network layer, for example. Where is your cluster going to sit? In a VNet, in a VPC? How are you going to make sure that your VNet is properly configured so that it's uh, private, that you have a control of the, of the road tables and that the road tables cannot be tampered with? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, how are you going to deal with storage? It's always interesting to use native storage if you can. Yeah. For example, a Azure Blob storage or S3. Yeah. And how you're going to integrate those storages into your clusters in a secure way and uh, well, things like that. I would rather work on the ecosystem first and leave it to the security engineer of the feature team to deal with the details of hardening the application itself. You see? Oh, right. Actually, that's a good point because... At an enterprise scale, it would not make sense to have decentralized, like, I mean, as much as Kubernetes is trying to be cloud agnostic and France or whatever you want, as an enterprise to maintain a certain standard, because there's hundreds and thousands of applications, and you're just not building one Kubernetes application, you have all these other different kinds of applications that may also exist. So if you're to what you called about the framework is an interesting point where the services, the common services we spoke about earlier, that needs to be a framework that, hey, what are you doing for storage? What are you doing for networking? What are you doing for secret management? What are you doing for, how would these communicate with each other? Would this be yeah. internet accessible? Integration, service integration as well, as we said, yes, service integration. or whatever. Any third party, what's the risk matrix yeah, like? Exactly. What, who's going to make the risk call? Who's the owner? There's another component around operationalizing the entire application as well. And in general, the whole conversation, usually with logging and monitoring with community seems to go into like a rabbit hole sometimes because people are like, oh, it kind of, you kind of get some logging, not too much logging. Mm-hmm. And especially at scale, have you got, in your experience of working in that cloud native space with Kubernetes hosted applications, was there ever a scale challenge with logging or how are you guys dealing with like at, at, at scale how was security working on an operationalized application in kubernetes the, the issue we have with logs is logs and events is that first events are not really necessarily easy to write oh, right. uh, and and to centralize and we have many information from the events which are not in the logs which are very useful for security and, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the cloud providers have a lot of work to do on uh, the way they deliver the logs and the events to us. If it's a managed service, it should include the logs and the events. It's, they should manage the way we could easily retrieve logs and events at scale for us. Otherwise, it's uh, once again, it's not really a pass service. It's a half pass. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they yeah. really need to make an effort on, on this on, on the log story and the event story, I think. Yeah, and what a common here, comment here. Oh, for some reason, the name didn't come up, but sometimes cloud service in their early life cycle 
technological evolution are not compatible with other cloud native service. For example, using something other than native secret management service, for example, sometimes they are integrated initially firmly into a local ecosystem before we can bring them into an approved consumable list of service. That's great fun. Working, however, with the provider security stuff ensures we can start to evolve new products with them. Any, any thoughts on that? You, I mean, I definitely agree on the statement here that you can work with AWS, Azure, Google Cloud to, hey, we need this service. But kind of what I agree with whoever the person is that they called out that, hey, sometimes integrating into the local ecosystem is really hard. And I mean, yeah, sorry, I'll let you come comment. You're right. Sometimes it's nearly impossible to integrate in the local ecosystem. So um, no, no, you're right. I, I, I don't have any specific example in mind that I'm ready to I share. One, one thing that I think of some, sometimes is the backup services that people have. There's a very popular backup service used by enterprise con it's called Comvault. Well, it's a very popular backup service. And I mean, a lot of backup services start saying, we, we back up your cloud. But they could never talk to them. Like, just send us a file, we'll back it up for you. We're like, well, that's not kind of what we were thinking yeah. of. This is not the cloud native way, I guess. The other way around, we would say, I would say. Yeah. Uh, we so should move McCall. everything Thanks to the cloud. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, there was Stephen McCall who basically said. But now, to what you said, I definitely agree with what Stephen said as well, which is the fact that that's also a challenge. And again, kind of goes back to what you were saying in the beginning about finding, being that counterweight and finding a balance between all of this. I mean, uh, maybe our job has become a lot more harder than it used to be. Now, you kind of have to know cloud, cloud native, Kubernetes. And once you understand that, because you kind of want to be able to give the right security recommendation, on top of that, you have to understand the landscape of the ecosystem you work in, what can work and what cannot work as well. That That's definitely... Is and the operating model, you know, actually, the operating model, because remember that uh, Kubernetes is a cluster. Sometimes the feature teams themselves are very good at coding, but not, not so good at administrating clusters because, of course, it's not their job. So, <laughs> yes, there's this dimension also to take into account how, what is going to be your operating model for, for the clusters. Oh, my God. Yes, you're right. Oh, oh actually, that's a good point because developers who may have been given a managed Kubernetes service, Amazon or Azure, Google Cloud would say, don't worry about the service in the background, we're taking care of this stuff for you. <laughs> but as we all know, the defaults are not always secure in most of, I mean, I can't remember if it's still true, but the Amazon EKS service was by default public API. Yeah, well. a long time ago. Public. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same. it was the same for Azure. There you go. Like, and which organization is okay with a public API service? Because for people who remember the Tesla breach that happened, that was their public-facing Kubernetes API service. Probably don't want to give access to that to anyone as well. So, I mean, that's great. Pretty awesome. One of the questions that I wanted to ask before we kind of towards the tail end of the interview as well is from a challenge perspective, we spoke about culture. We spoke about just having a deeper understanding of the cloud native service as well. Was there a personal challenge for you to transition from where you were as a technical architect from the on-premise world? Because people listening to this also maybe like, what was that one thing that was the hardest for you to kind of unlearn maybe as well? Because clearly there's a lot of unlearning as well. What was something that you kind of felt that, oh my God, this is a lot more challenging as you were transitioning onto becoming a cloud security architect and then a cloud native security architect? Yeah, that's a very good good point for me. I, that it was very challenging actually seven years ago because we didn't have all the security features that we have now in the cloud. So it was really, if you're a control freak, it was really a big challenge to, to meet. And so I was in the old world. So I was my mindset was yeah, looking backward and the cloud is something that is completely different. And it was, very, it was very difficult, I won't deny. And what I had to unlearn is maybe the way I dealt with risks and how 
we handle risks because uh, as opposed to what we do internally, we don't have many leverage with the cloud providers in terms of risk. They That's do what right, they want, yeah. and of course, because they cannot afford to listen to every single. So you have to do with what they propose, and you have to be original, creative, inventive. And, uh, and, and it's what saved me is uh, the capability to. Mm-hmm. Because it's not only the cloud provider, but the customers have a huge capacity and capability and opportunity to innovate in the cloud. We always say, okay, Microsoft invented this, or Google invented that, but the customers also invent things. And for me, it was difficult because it was a nascent, let's say, technology, but it was also a, a wonderful playground for innovation and creativity. And that it helped me a lot to overcome the difficulties I had in terms of securing stuff. So I had to find new ways to, to secure what we took for granted before. It's safe enough for me to say this as well. Like if you would have spoken to Ashish eight, nine years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I did not believe in the cloud. I totally was <laughs> one person who was like, why would I trust this cloud? And then I became, I transitioned onto the person who was talking about, have you ever heard of a vulnerability in AWS? But now I'm kind of going back onto some of those, like maybe not fully, but still thinking because there have been so many vulnerabilities that have been found for AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, you had like a blog post around this as well, where trying to measure our risk on the application, assuming that the shared responsibility means Amazon, Azure, Google Cloud is taking care of their part. Even the Kubernetes people have taken their part, but our risk is basically should be a lot. I mean, we should put their risk at a higher thing as well now, because we don't know how many undiscovered services are there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Some of the vulnerabilities that were announced require the customer to restart the service or move to the new next version of the service as well. Do you feel like your trust level on the cloud has that changed as well as you kind of like go in between and now about potential vulnerabilities in the cloud service provider as well? Uh, to tell you the truth, no. Because I, when you do the risk analysis, even seven years ago, you have to take all the peculiarities of the cloud into account. Yeah. So you are already aware that you assume the worst, okay? <laughs> so yeah. I was prepared for that. And actually, since there are vulnerabilities, my trust in the cloud has increased, not decreased. Oh, right. Yes, it has increased because now we used to have no problems in the cloud. Everything was good, perfect, everything rosy. Yeah. And it was worrying. When you say to a security guy, everything is okay, the guy starts to be worried. Oh, I know that the cloud is just a technology that another one. And, and we have also this fantastic opportunity to read the reports from the security researcher who found the vulnerabilities. And it gives yeah. you very interesting insight on how it works in, be, be behind the yeah. curtain. Yeah. And so... Uh, it gives you confidence or that what you thought would happen and, and uh, you tried always to imagine uh, how it could happen. It gives you some confidence of the hypothesis you made and also a lot of trust because that the provider deal with the problem. Also the, that uh, it is their business, their core business, so uh, they make sure that it won't happen again. And mm-hmm. uh, it's always better that a security researcher find a vulnerability than uh, maybe some someone who is uh, much less... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you probably don't want the attacker to find a vulnerability. You want the security researchers disclosing it properly. Yeah, but, but uh, this being said, we still have those risks hanging over our head, right? Yeah. Someday yeah. we could have a critical vulnerability which will be absolutely catastrophic for the business and we yeah. have all to anticipate that. And what I like about the vulnerabilities is that there's a lot of advertisement about it. Now everybody is aware that the worst can happen. Yeah. It was not the case a lot of maybe two or three years ago. And so yeah. people have to anticipate for the next problem. 
and okay. they will get uh, some funding in their, uh, to to help them uh, put more mitigations or or to change the way they handle maybe encryption or identity management due to the vulnerabilities of the cloud providers themselves and be more cautious about the way they put their crown jewels into the cloud. Yeah, it's a lot uh, of awareness. Uh, the best awareness, having a vulnerability is the best way to be aware about the risks, I think. So as well, well, I definitely don't not trust the cloud, but my to what you said, from a risk perspective as a CISO, I definitely put them in a category where, hey, let's be careful about this one as well. And I'm talking about a risk as well, and another one that came in. So Stephen just mentioned, yes, EKS is still default public, but he had a question as well. What's your thought on using bottleneck like anti-malware, EDR, EPR protection in terms of images for Kubernetes? Oh yeah, because Kubernetes containers may not have any of this EDR, EPR, or EDP, anti-malware. And that's technically like a... Not anti-cloud pattern as well, some people may say. So what are your thoughts on that? I haven't, I, I, I actually, Bottle Rocket is, is a very nice idea. It's not uh, maybe for everybody, but we have to change our culture. And uh, But the, the developers will have to change if we want to, uh, to use stuff like this, Bottle Rocket, because immutable containers is, is something that is, maybe they are not used to, it's not, le- it's not so comfortable to use as uh, your, just your vanilla container. Uh, yeah. So it's, we need to go towards a direction. We need to be extra cautious about how we remote access to the containers from the internal enterprise. And these are the things that are going to come in the next few years. We are going to see a big strengthening of containers within the next few years, the way we deal with container security. At the moment, it's not enough. We're not doing enough. And Bottle Rocket is a first step forward. There are other options. Other ways to secure containers are not always immutable containers. It's not the only solution, but we are going to see more and more of this stuff. As for EDRs, I, I don't know. Honestly, I haven't made up my own opinion about this kind of technology. We see a lot of contradictory messages being published on the social networks about experts using them and not so experts also, unfortunately. So for me, it's too early to tell EDR in containers. I'm kind of the same as well, Stephen. I'm assuming it's Stephen who's answering the question as well, but can your own thoughts as well, Stephen? if you want to share that as well because i definitely find that there is another conversation which is probably kind of related to this as well is the use of trusted container images in the first place is your registry local or is it going to be on the internet there's a complexity from that perspective as well and that kind of hangs on the balance there is a trust of the container image itself but there is also the temporal dimension right how is it going to evolve over time so bottle rocket also addresses this and that we all focus on images security we have ways to, to secure images, but we have less ways to secure live containers over time. And that's really the problem for me. The images, yeah. it's, it's under control for me. Yeah. And now this will start supporting AWS Inspector with AWS Bottle Rocket as well. So that'll be interesting as well as to if, how that becomes part of the whole workflow. There's a comment from Gabriel as well. Vulnerabilities have just needed better marketing. Somehow... Fancy names get more attention than CV1234. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's true. Uh, well said, Gabriel. Well said. Yeah. This is the final question as well. We're towards the tail end of the interview. And I just kind of had a related question from what Batista asked. Please suggest the best cloud security certification for beginners. Is, first of all, probably should demystify, is cloud security architect or a cloud native security architect what would you classify as a beginner level? I feel like it's a field where you need to have some experience in IT or building application before you get into the space. For me, beginner is that in the yes, architect yes, concept. Yes, is that yes, what you agree? Yes, completely. You have to have a lot of experience, actually. Not just experience, but a lot of experience. To be not only an architect, but also you have to have an experience in the security field. And as I said, risk analysis. 
in particular. So I don't know if there is such thing as a certification. In my case, I have always worked by experimenting, working with production guys, I try to integrate into production teams and um, tinkering with the stuff and try to learn myself. Not too, I don't like too much certification because if there's a problem, it's because they are by the club providers themselves. So it's, you have to have your own critical thinking once again, when you are an architect. So certifications are good because you need to, to know your bearings, you need to know where to go, what not to miss, what is absolutely, you have absolutely to know, but it's just the beginning of the story is a certification to become an architect. It's not. Yeah, that's a good point. And maybe for Batista as well, as you asked the question as well, maybe another suggestion over here, but so hopefully that this helps as well is to what Christoph said, it's good to know the services in your cloud provider because that would help you build that beginner experience and what services are, and maybe that would help you with the interview. But building application, you can't advise on risk network if you don't know what network is, or you can't advise on what secret management is if you don't know what secrets are used for and how does it apply to a large application scale. That's where it's worthwhile calling out that definitely feel there could be a transition from a technical architect to a cloud native architect that could be a, like is there a recommendation on that space because there would be a lot of people who would be doing that as well so maybe when batista at that point where if he or she is at that point where they maybe already be a technical architect and that's what they're thinking from a beginner perspective how what, yeah. what is certification valuable or what should they learn? Yeah, to I think that's, a... yes, yes. Certification, of course, is valuable because if you're already a technical architect, you've done a lot of the hard stuff before. And yeah. what, you have the experience, you have the mindset, uh, you think in patterns, how to communicate, how to be a strategist. So you already a lot of stuff. Certification will be an accelerator to go to the cloud, definitely. And you have the critical thinking. So maybe, yes, for technical architects, certification is probably something to, yes, to consider. Yes, uh, well, for, awesome. and, on top of the priority. I, I definitely agree. Certification probably helps you at least get an understanding of what services are there. And to what you said, if you already have that critical thinking from your technical architecture experience or, or a security architect experience from before, from the past, you can just, mm -hmm. oh, instead of now do, using networking as my regular on-premise, this is how networking works in cloud, but I can apply the same controls. Yeah, it's exactly. the same fundamentals. Fundamentals hasn't really changed. No, it's no. just that now we apply a new technology. Yeah, exactly. And the last comment from Gabriel as well is that he, it was really interesting for me to discover that security is included in AWS solution architect track. This is really, also the security is also the thing in Azure solution architect track. And Stephen just shared his opinion as well. Is that the, I might just read it outside. Otherwise you can, people can't see you. I'll just say Stephen is saying, thanks for asking my opinion. The cloud provider have not yet provisioned a, an AquaSec type approach to for securing entire Kubernetes platform out there. There is a lot of work necessary in terms of reducing the overall attack surface and integrating with the wider operating model across an organization. As you mentioned, not everyone understands Kubernetes, never mind being an expert at it. The cloud providers have more work to do here, education and awareness and a lot more. Uh, now, thank you for that, Stephen. I appreciate that as well. And that was kind of like the end of the technical questions, but this was a great session. And so can, for other me. people who love you and maybe love you even more after they hear the episode, where can people find you on the on LinkedIn only because I don't have enough time to be on Twitter or other <laughs> social media. So I, I am entirely focused on LinkedIn. Well, okay, cool. And I'll leave the LinkedIn link for your thank account you. as well so people can connect with you. But Christophe, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, coming in too, and uh, sharing your time as well. It's a lot of people enjoyed the session. I enjoyed the session as well. Mm -hmm. And looking forward much. to having you again. It'll be yeah. awesome. Yes, yes, why not? With pleasure thank anyway. You,
Thanks, thanks, so and thanks everyone else. And that was the last episode for Community Security Month as well. We'll see you folks for an AW Security Month starting next week. And I'll talk to you then. Thanks everyone. See ya. Goodbye.